Welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades Podcast, episode 224. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And this is the part on the intro where I usually tell you who my guest is and what they do. Now, I can do the first part of that for you. My guest this week is Dustin Wendling. And Dustin is an old friend of mine. I met him in sixth grade. We hung out a bunch in middle school, some in high school. We had a bunch of classes together. And I've always liked him, always enjoyed his company. And thanks to the magic of social media, we reconnected, we've been friends on Facebook, and he's one of my favorite people to spar with. Because, and he goes into this in some detail on the show, he has this remarkable ability of taking a lot of data, synthesizing it down, and in his words, connecting the stars and drawing the constellation of a big idea of analysis of whatever it is we're talking about. We both have an interest in energy. We've both worked in energy. We don't spend much time on this episode talking about energy, but we end up talking about big ideas. And so this is where I say the second part of the normal part of the intro, I can't really tell you. I looked it up on LinkedIn before I talked to him, but he works for a big company. He's in charge of like 100 people, and he lives in Mexico City. Now, he alludes to the work that he does to whatever extent it's useful in this conversation. But what's odd is I didn't particularly want to talk about the nuts and bolts of what he did. And truthfully, I didn't even go into this episode with a real hard agenda. I just wanted to talk to him. And what came out was beautiful. I love this conversation. I really do. And I don't agree with everything that Dustin says in it. I don't 100% buy into his ideology. But I will say that I am happy that we did this. And I'm proud of the conversation that we had. And one thing I agree with him 100% on is try leading with empathy and try leading with gratitude. Use that as a personal philosophy. Use it as a business philosophy. Use it any way you want, but try leading with empathy. Try leading with gratitude. And I don't mean for this to be a spoiler because the journey to get there is fascinating. He has had an unbelievable road. He talks about being born in Chicago, growing up in Florida, how he got expelled from third grade, ended up in inner city Denver, and then up the hill at Ralston Elementary with a bunch of rich white kids, and how he's lived all over the world. And at every stop on the way, there's a great anecdote, a great story. I hope you caught, earlier this week, his first job. Fishing golf balls out of alligator-infested waters and selling them back to golfers on the weekends. He did that at six years old. So he's always had an entrepreneurial spirit, always been very adventurous, and he's always ventured into new territory. And so he was in town. He lives in Mexico City right now. He was in town just taking care of some business. He still maintains a house here. He's had a renter there for eight years. And I asked him, like, hey, can you carve out an hour for me? Because although we haven't seen each other in probably more than 20 years, I would love to get together with you and talk. So he came over. I met his lovely girlfriend. And we had a terrific chat. And it's one that I'm glad I had because this is a time of year where I end up reflecting on a lot. Because this airs on my birthday. I turned 38 years old today, and as I reflect on the year that was, it was challenging. And there will be more on this next week, so a quick teaser alert, quick programming note. There won't be an audio episode next week, but I dropped my annual essay. And expect a lot from that, because there's a lot that's going into writing it. And yeah, you'll pick up some good tunes, and you'll find out what I'm kind of into. But more than that, it's a reflection on the year that was. And this one has been particularly philosophical for me because I've had a lot of rough spots. But as a result of that, I've gained a lot of perspective. So sitting down with Dustin and getting to just talk about big ideas and talk about life and talk about how we experience the world and what we should expect from the world and maybe what the world expects from us, as my friend Jason likes to say. That's what this episode is about. And it's an odd bit of serendipity. I didn't plan on this one being my birthday episode, But I'm happy that it is. And if we can key on those two points real quick, empathy and gratitude. Empathy is the whole reason for existence of this podcast. I want to build more empathy in the world, build a bridge where one didn't exist before, where we all understand each other a little bit better, and maybe our interactions become a little less scary. And gratitude. 
I'm grateful for the platform, and I'm grateful that you make me a part of your life. Thank you for listening. Thank you for letting me do this show. And if I've touched you in any way whatsoever, that means the world to me. I appreciate you, and thank you. Now then, let's do episode 224. I've got Dustin Wendling. He is a good, good friend of mine. I hope his travels back to Mexico City are good and safe and prosperous, and I'm grateful for the time that he gave me. So, episode 224 with Dustin Wendling starts right now. Yeah, yeah, it's rent, it's been rented out for a long time. It's been rented out for about eight years. Wow. Same lady. Same lady. Same lady. Yeah, she pays rent on time every month, so... That's nice. It's working out. <laughs> it covers the uh, mortgage, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just paid off the mortgage, so. Oh, that's fat. Good. Okay, yeah. so this is like mailbox money now. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's other rent money for wherever I'm living at the time. <laughs> so yeah, whatever I make on the house here, it goes into, uh, into somebody else's pocket somewhere else in the world, so. Yeah, cause you're in Mexico City now, right? Yeah, Mexico City, uh, it's a megalopolis, you know, 26 million people. Good lord. It's, uh, six Colorados in one big city. Jeez. And they're all on top of each other. It comes with its own, you know, pros and cons, as you know, sure. most mega cities do. Um, I would say the negative bits are the traffic and the pollution caused by the traffic. So this is, you know, okay. two issues, same source. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a self perpetuating mechanism. Yeah, um, but I would say you know the, the culture is bright and vibrant and beautiful. Uh, the food is awesome. So if you're a foodie, uh, I mean, you could spend you know, three lifetimes in that city and I'm still sure, never man. hit like scratch the surface of the gastronomy of mexico well it's crazy like when you go to la and like in every crappy strip mall that there is there will be like this gem in there mm -hmm. you know and you compare that against most other cities in the country and that's not true yeah. but you know in in a city that size everyone's carved out this tiny little patch of real estate for themselves where they're doing something really unique really cool and like really really good yeah 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 if you're a foodie mexico city's the place to go uh absolutely there's food from every type walk of life there i think street food there is actually pretty strong as well like if you ever um if, if you've ever been to asia you know that the places like thailand and um and vietnam always get street cred for the street food uh but i think mexico city has street stalls that that rock pretty hard as yeah. well i mean you can get uh you know little abuelita sitting there selling tacos and i mean like not just tacos al pastor like the classic sort of ones that we're accustomed to but like stuff you never even heard of yeah. that is just like blow your mind delicious and the the types of different salsas uh the types of like i mean Me mexico knows spice on like so many layers mm -hmm. and not to be like not to take a deep dive into food but it's like you got you got like sweet, smoky, uh -huh. spicy, right? So like no, some okay. Let's let's start at the beginning, right? Sure. One to ten volume, right? Spice, right? There's like yeah. a little bit of spice, a lot of spice, right? In Asia, it's all like nines and tens. It's like yeah. slam you in the face with some like like tiny little violet colored pepper that you eat with sticky rice, and you end up like having an ulcer and sweating for like ten hours and not being able to sleep. <laughs> That's a ten, right? Yeah, what a hoot. Yeah, <laughs> and then you get into Mexico and they they have like a whole range of spices. They do like they're like fours, fives, sixes, and then they take them different directions. You know, sweet, spicy, smoky, spicy, sour, spicy, Ooh. like acid, spicy, salty, spicy. Like they take it a whole different direction, and then you can still be on that spice curve, but then you have like you know two hundred types of different salsas that you can just throw on there, and that's what makes Jeez. it. Because I mean, you know, steak is steak, and chicken is chicken, and beans and rice are right, beans right, and right. rice. But then it's the salsa that like changes everything, right? And they've really got that locked down. So yeah, I enjoy living in Mexico City. It's vibrant, a lot of music. Mm -hmm. uh, where we live is uh, is a little place called Coyoacan. It's in the southeast side of town. It's like a little, I don't know, an old satellite city that used to people used to take their horse and carriage to outside mm -hmm. the city, which is now like incorporated as part of the main the main centro. Yeah, but uh, it's got like hacienda style houses, cobblestone streets, like Spanish colonial vibe, big mature trees, which is kind of rare. Oh, sure, so, yeah. you know, like big parks with you know, Catholic churches and stuff like that. It's pretty cool. Well, dude, I'll tell you, listening to you talk. So this is Dustin Wendling. And normally when I do this, I have like a company and a title teed up for it. Yeah. But I don't have that for you. <laughs> and, and before we get there. Yeah, sure. Uh, just listening to you sort of paint this picture of what it's like to live in Mexico City. It's very evocative and it's very vivid. Yeah. And it reminds me of how much I miss you on Facebook. Because you're not posting as much as you used to. That's true. I mean, the things that you used to post were either very evocative and, and very colorful, or 
they were in the interest of being better global citizens. Right. Right. And, 100%. and I don't see that as much anymore because you're not as active. That's true. You know, I, I, yeah, I've taken a step back from Facebook, I think in general, because, you know, uh, sometimes you feel like you're talking to a wall, you know, <laughs> like, as I'm sure that, you know, podcasters and, you know, it's tough sometimes because, you know, you're, you have an audience that you're trying to reach out to. I mean, you have what every time I post something, I have somebody specific in mind that I'm trying to communicate to. really yeah absolutely okay wow so I'm, I'm really and and i've never actually to be perfectly honest i've never unfriended anyone on facebook mm-hmm. it just is a personal policy i've never shut anyone out of my life okay have um, you unfollowed anyone nope no wow never, i've never never disconnected with anybody you're, uh, even if they're toxic i mean right i'm i have the ability to filter yeah. the toxicity out but i mean i i, I want to stay relevant to them in their news feed okay and, and I mean, they, they probably blocked me, you know, a year ago and I'm still trying to talk to them through, right, you know, through right. this, this gap. Even if you're exhausted by their banality, like, because that's one of the reasons I, I unfollow people. It's like, okay, this is just too much uh, on a single subject and I'm now done with it. And some people are one, one issue voters. Like, some, some, and I'm not even talking about you know, that. No, I'm not, I'm not either, but right. I mean, one, one issue people. Yeah, Do you know what yeah, I mean? Like, right, they, yeah. they, like they, they latch onto something and then they want to right. scream it from the mountaintop until you're tired of hearing about it. Mm-hmm. I, I try to not, um, I try to at least, you know, potpourri, you know, <laughs> topics. I try not to be the, you know, the one note person. Um, and who I am in real life is, is way more dynamic and way more, I don't know, I suppose interesting than, than who I am on Facebook. You know, it's not like a curated image that I'm trying to, provide the world i don't do instagram and i don't do twitter because Mm -hmm. i'm a human being that is capable of more than 250 characters i I just i read a lot um i absorb a lot of information i think probably my my biggest skill set and this is probably just me this is like me in a nutshell Mm -hmm. um i tried to talk about this with my mom the other day and and explain to her you know like kind of what the secret formula to me is and I was saying, you know, every job I've ever had, um, and every, the way that I see the, the world, like the lens that I look through has always been, um, like four or five different phases, right? So the first phase is absorb as much information as possible, right? Step one is learn as much as possible, like soak up as much as you possibly can soak up from all the valid sources that you can find. You know, filter that down, like extrapolate, you know, filter that down to something that you can, you can chew on. And then stage three would be take it and synthesize it, like make it relevant to one another, connect the dots, like draw the constellation between the stars of data that you are seeing. And then uh, the final step would be able to present that constellation in a way that people can understand. And so, you know, it's like a little Noam Chomsky-esque, you know, where like, you, you know, you take this huge field of, of information and and um, and at the end of the day, you know, you're whiteboarding out a solution. Um, and I've applied that to, you know, all my work life and everything else. So I'm, I'm trying to draw constellations in the stars of information that, that I'm, that I'm absorbing. That's why, I mean, my, my, dude, uh, and that's so poetic, you know, the way you put it too. I'm trying to draw constellations in the stars of inf- information that I'm inputting. Yeah. That, that's a gorgeous way of putting it. And if, if you're distilling what I did in grad school down to a single sentence, that's essentially what writing a thesis is. Absolutely. And, and you're doing that all the time. I glanced briefly at your LinkedIn before you came over. Mm. And it, I mean, it was interesting what you had listed as education, you know? Mm, yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. Well, my education, formal education is network engineering. Um, and that's a perfect example. And you started that like in the middle of high school, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, my, my high school, <laughs> Uh, growing up, I was in the GT programs in Florida. Right? I was born in Chicago, raised in Florida, and came out to Colorado when I was about 10. Yeah. And then I got DPS school system, and the GT programs didn't exist, right? Okay. So then I was the big fish in the small pond, right? Because mm-hmm. I was like already ahead of the rest of the class. And then that's when the behavioral issues started because I was like, I did this already. I've already done this. And now yeah, and I just want to poke right? the next door neighbor <laughs> and talk about whatever the hell else we want to talk about, right? Yeah. So so then, you know, then I got the reputation for talking out in class and being a disruption and whatever. And and um, and yeah, I mean, I I, um, I was expelled from third grade. There's a, there's a story. Yeah. Uh, so my brother, uh, <laughs> this is a funny story, actually. Uh, my mom and dad got divorced um, when I was two, and but but my dad moved uh, to Fort Myers, and we lived in Naples, which is just a half hour away in Florida, the Gulf Coast. And uh, so my dad was a pilot instructor, and my brother 
and I, we used to go visit our dad every other weekend and he would let us at like six and eight years old watch Top Gun because, you know, our dad's a pilot, right? And this was like 1985, 1987 or something. And we, we were like, Top Gun is our favorite movie, right? And so my dad let us watch Top Gun over and over on the weekends with him and we knew all the lines, my brother and I, but we knew we were not allowed to tell our mom that we'd seen it, right? Because she would have freaked out. So then we, um, we went back to school and my brother had a crush on a girl, right? And yeah. so he wrote on a giant, you know, lined piece of paper, eight by 11, right? He, right in the middle, he wrote, um, a note to this girl, a love letter to this girl. And then he folded it up and he gave it to her and she put it in her backpack. And then, um, the next day my mom got a call from the principal and she's like, you have to come in cause your son's in deep shit. And you know, <laughs> my mom's like, what did he do? Did he, you know, she's thinking he punched somebody, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? He's something. Yeah, did he bite a teacher? Yeah. You know, like he's, he's in third grade, he's in fifth grade, you know, he's just mm-hmm. starting to learn about girls, you know? And, um, so then uh, she goes in and my dad's there and this, of course my mom and dad are divorced and they're now in the principal's office mm-hmm. cause their son's, um, and then, uh, so then she goes in and, um, says, what, what, what's going on? You know, what, who, why am I here? What's yeah, going yeah. on? And she goes, the principal says, well, you know, uh, it's better, I think, uh, let the dad tell you. So the father of the little girl was like, your son gave this letter to my daughter. And my mom said, well, can I see it? And she said, open it up. She unfolds it all the way out. And then right in the middle of the page, it says, take me to bed or lose me forever. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Goose's wife, right? Yeah, She's, he's totally. playing, he's playing great balls of fire. Remember the scene? And oh, he's yeah, playing yeah. great balls of fire on the, on the piano. And then she sits down and she says, take me to bed or lose me forever. Goose, you big, you big stud. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. So then my brother thinks that's what, so my mom looks at it. She goes, she turns to my brother and she goes, what, Adam, what does this mean to you? And he goes, you know, and he starts welling up with tears, you know, uh, um, it means I like you. Yeah. And my mom's like, see, <laughs> I mean, he doesn't even know what yeah, the yeah. reference is. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then, uh, and then I, that was my brother's big, you know, big red <laughs> X from the school. And then mine was, um, I went into the, to the bathroom and, uh, and I started, I closed the door and in Florida, all the bathrooms are tiled, like even the ceilings and everything. Okay, so yeah. the acoustics in this bathroom are <laughs> bomb, right? Yeah, yeah. So I shut the door and I walk in and I'm like peeing and I'm like, oh yeah. Looking around, oh yeah, it's some reverb in here. So I start singing at the top of my lungs, joy to the world. Oh my. You know. Wait, Christmas Carol or Three Dog Night? Joy to the world, the Lord. Okay. At the top of my lungs. Okay. Right? The, yeah. The Christmas Carol, yeah. not the Three Dog Night version. No. Joy okay. to the world. Christmas Carol, top of my lungs, every single verse, right? There's like four or five verses. Most people don't know, like past one. I, yeah, yeah. for some reason, had all five, whatever, in my pocket. And the teacher's banging on the door, and I'm like, I'm not done yet. <laughs> it's so, got to finish the song. Yeah, what if the song's not over? So then we go back, open up the door, we get down to the principal's office, and then they send us, um, they sent, they expelled both of us. Oh, the my. Windling they brothers expelled you were, for just singing in the bathroom? We were too joyful for this school. Clearly. Yeah. And we, my brother loved too hard, and I sang too hard about joy. So then they sent us to a Catholic school where the nuns thought we were trouble, and they, they beat the hell out of us. And Did they pad- really? With be- paddles, dude. They, really? Yeah, man. One time a nun broke a wooden paddle over my ass. Jesus. She hit my, she didn't hit my ass, she hit my tailbone, and it broke her wooden stick, and then she looked at me like, I, was the devil and my mom pulled us right out of that Good school as God, soon as she man. heard that. Is that how you ended up at Ralston after that? Yeah. So basically they, when they, you and I met, yeah. I was coming out of Florida, um, from that experience, landed in Denver, went to DPS, okay. had uh was like well, the only white kid in my school. Like, what school, my class. Like what it was, neighborhood uh, were you in? Uh five points. It's downtown okay. like, oh, my, right. Southampton, yeah. So my best friend was uh was an Asian South Korean kid named Sung and the other kid was Nathan this big black kid uh-huh. and I was like pretty much the token white friend of everybody. Um so then I went from like Beach Boy Florida to you know uh ghetto black metal detector school yeah. uh where where I get chased home by big black kids cuz I'm white. Yeah right? like inner city Denver. Yeah yeah, yeah and yeah. I join a gang and all that stuff you know like for protection you know cuz wow. you get singled out. It's like going to prison every day, you know? Jesus. And then, uh, and then, so I got hard skin, you know? Like, I toughened mm-hmm. up really hard, you know? They got the, started speaking in Ebonics, you know? <laughs> Shoo, chewing your mama, you know, all that. Uh, playing basketball, uh, every day on the school, Jesus. you know what I mean? Like, that became my, my life. Just a chameleon adapted to that and then turned around and went up to Ralston where like, it's all white kids and they're all super rich. And so like, yeah. I show up and I'm just like, the only white kid that acts black, at the whole school. And that was, that was, you know, the other big shift, the other direction. So, what grade was that? Uh, f- fourth grade. Okay. Cause I came to Ralston sixth. 
Yeah. I was only there for the last year. So I didn't, I either didn't know or forgot all this. Yeah. I, I imagine, I mean, we were friends, but like we didn't yeah. hang out all that much. No, no. And, and that's fine. I mean, I, really the thing is, is, um, I was going through a really rough time as well, you know, mm-hmm. inside the family. It was, there was another marriage that ended in divorce and I had a stepbrother and a stepsister and it just got ugly, you know? So it was like, yeah. you know, kind of shut down, you know? Sure. Um, but yeah, later on, you know, that all those things were learning experiences, you know, like learning how to deal with, uh, different cultures, learning how to deal with all that. And yeah, and I went to, um, so when I was in high school, I was just like tired of it, you know? Yeah. So I started going to the technical school, um, in my junior year. Yeah. Warren tech, uh, right? Warren tech. Yeah. Nice. And, uh, and I did that for network engineering. And then, uh, so I got my CCNA and my Novell network admin and all that, all that stuff up there. And then uh, I continued on. Like how quickly did you do that? Then. Two years. It was a, it was an accelerated program. Jesus. It, like on top of your high school work? Yeah. So I knocked out most of my high school credits in the first two years. Um, I still have, my last name's Wendling. So they put the W's on the second semester for social, like social, like civ, civ, civ home. What's it called? Civ, civ class, you know, like okay. government class. Yeah, yeah, and like, yeah. I couldn't take the first semester cause I'm not an A through L. Okay. So I was like, I got to hang out for another semester and just be enrolled. Um, but yeah, I got out of high school early. I started Warren Tech um, while I was in high school the last two years. And then um, my senior year, what would have been my senior year at high school, I um, I started going to Red Rocks University because it was transferable credits from Warren Tech. So um, it's called post-secondary education. Mm-hmm. So one, my high school pays for Warren Tech and Warren Tech pays for university. <laughs> and so I got like two free gonna, years of college because nice my high school paid for it. Yeah, I did. I did. I was like a, it was a, yeah, it was a Bernie Madoff thing. Uh, no, it was good. I had um, I had a really good uh, education. Um, I got out and I needed to work. You know, yeah. um, that was that was I did, my economic situation wasn't wasn't um like a lot of my peers so uh i graduated with no debt and you know put my way through college working restaurants and all that anyhow that's just me but uh yeah so got out of school and that was good enjoyed it ever since but i would say yeah going back to the the idea that um you know what my skill set is is you know take the big pieces of data break it down synthesize it uh work it uh, and then make presentations that 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 served me really well as a network engineer Jesus. Um, you know, just, uh, whiteboarding out, um, yeah. you know, disaster recovery protocols and then packets and routing and all that stuff. Okay. So like what, because like when, when I see you post, you know, it's frequently about politics or energy. You yeah. and I have sparred quite a bit over energy yeah, because sure. that, that's what, I mean, yeah, that's uh, your industry. And, I, and, also, and it, has it was my industry as well. Yeah, so yeah. like we're coming from the same place. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. But I mean, you've worked all over the world now at this point. I remember before Mexico city, you were in Chile, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, the last 12 years have been exciting and crazy. Um, but yeah, fortunately, um, I've had the, the great fortune to be able to travel. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it was Mexico for a year and then Chile for about three years. Um, and then Australia and New Zealand for about Jeez. 18 months. Wow. Um, and then after that, um, took a break. Um, my brother was, uh, dying of brain cancer. So, yeah. um, you know, being so far away from home and all that. And then when he, when he um, eventually passed away, uh, I needed a pause. So then we went to Asia for a little while. We did uh, yeah. Thailand, and and then uh, and now I'm back. You know, so another three years, um, basically, you know, running an IT consulting company from Boulder, um, Boulder, Colorado, and um, yeah, uh, working in banks and insurance companies all around the world. And we do just interesting, you know, things like bi- biometric security, you know, facial recognition, um, you know. Voice, uh, fingerprints, all that. So, wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and it also raises a lot of, you know, ethical questions as well. And that's, sure. you know, that's, um, you know, we're collecting a lot of information on the public, um, that they probably, they know or may, may not know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all going into databases, which are, you know, no databases ever really safe. Just ask right. Experian, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I work in that world of, you know, providing services to the public, um, in a way, I'm not selling more hamburgers, you know, so yeah, yeah. I'm actually saving the public, you know, hundreds of years worth of time. Well, it's funny because I spent two ill-fated months working uh, as marketing manager for this energy drink. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that being just a very challenging work environment from a personal standpoint and a personality standpoint, me not getting along with the boss, I've never been screamed at in my face except for at that job, mm. which was... Something I just was not used to and I'm not going to deal with, right? That's, yeah, that's just, that's not going to happen. But at the end of the day, I remember thinking, if I am as good at my job as I possibly can be, 
we're selling more energy drink. And who really needs that? Right. Like, who gives a shit? Right? At, right. at the end of the day, that that's just not where the rubber met the road for me. I'm like, I got to do something where I feel like actually matters, like public policy or you know, things to, to where we're trying to improve people's lives in our own way. A hundred percent agree. Absolutely. I think that that's, that's probably the most rewarding thing. And that's, what's cool about our generation is that, you know, we don't have those 40 year guaranteed jobs where we can just shut down and pretend like everything's going to be okay. Yeah. There's a whole world that's changing around us. It's globalization. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're working on a totally different level right now. And I think probably that that's a good segue and that's sort of what I wanted to touch on with you today is, is that something that I thought about on the drive down here. I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't even know what the format is. I don't know what he's <laughs> going to ask me. But I think one of the things that I wanted to talk about, and I guess something that I talk about publicly, is the connection between emotions and risk and and what is what is perceived versus real threat. Mm-hmm. Um, working in the insurance industry, you know, you work on evaluating all these things all the time. I mean, it's essentially right. the casino of risk, right? I mean, it's the roulette wheel of risk and how much you bet versus how much you want to gain and it, I mean, it's mm-hmm. that's that's insurance and it's also stock market and it's also the food you eat and the you know, whether you smoke or don't smoke, it's uh, it's your health, it's your life, um, it's the country you live in, it's the kind of water you have coming out of the tap. Mm-hmm. Like it's risk is everything in life um, and it's how you um, approach it, it from an emotional perspective that I think is what's interesting. I think probably start with a, a, a little thought experiment, right? Yeah. You ready? Okay. Okay. Um, just gut feeling, right? And for your listeners to um, just don't do the math on this, guys. Just just feel it out, right? Do you think that you're a million seconds old? Yes. And you would be correct. Yeah. A million seconds is 11 and a half days. <laughs> okay. So two-week-old baby is a million seconds old. Yeah. All right, quick. Do you think you're a billion seconds old? Yes. Okay. You're also correct because a billion seconds is 32 years. Okay. Yeah. So I right. surpassed that. So, I mean, but um, yeah, and I'm 37. But, I mean, yeah. think about that for a second. Like, we throw around these numbers like million, mm. billion, trillion, right? A trillion is 32,000 years. Oh, God. Okay. okay. So, like, when people were coming out of Africa, that's how many seconds ago a trillion is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, we're talking – I mean, you have to understand that there's a gulf between a million and a billion and a trillion. Three yeah. more zeros. You know, these placeholder zeros mean a lot, right? Yeah. Well, you asked me on gut instinct, right? Right. And so like my immediate reaction with a billion was I'm like, yes, that feels like, because, uh, if you've seen rent, yeah. right. You know, there's yeah, that 525,600 <laughs> minutes. Yeah. That like, uh-huh. so, <laughs> if, uh, if you can relate it back to that, cause I mean, I know like you did, you, like you were involved in music in high school too. Sure. And, sure. Like you guys almost were a boy band for God's I sake. I wasn't a boy band. Yet. Well, yeah, but yeah. I mean like <laughs> almost like a breakthrough boy. Yeah. Band. Yeah. We almost made it. Yeah. We went to LA and, um, and competed there. But yeah, when you think about just like your emotional response to numbers, we have to make that connection, right? So just think about it for a second, right? Yeah. No, no human being has ever counted to a billion. No. And no, no human being has ever had a billion sheep. No. No one's ever had a billion of anything that was worth anything, right? I mean, you could hold a billion grains of sand in your hand and be like, yeah, I got a billion of these. Yeah, but, but you'd so never was. count them right. and it would never be worth anything, right? So no. of anything of value, right? So when we, when we talk about, you know, what is what is a billion mm-hmm. you know and just to zero in on that zoom in on that for a second and think about that like it would take 32 years 24 hours a day to count a dollar every second to reach a, to become a billionaire mm-hmm. right and you know no since no one's ever counted out loud to a billion you just have to assume that it's just a math trick as soon as you recognize that, the difference between a millionaire and a billionaire gets pretty big, right? Yeah. A millionaire, like, dude, you and me, we can go out and count some money in two weeks. We're millionaires, right? Right, yeah. But, like, the billionaires, the whole, with a B, it's a whole different game, right? Mm-hmm. It's a totally different world. And then, um, you know, the U.S. You know, US economy is $2.6 trillion, So, like, Oh, my God, about, yeah. I mean, you have to think about, like, whoa, that's like a con- piling that's exponential, up. Exponential, yeah. Right? You know, so, so – and that's every year. Right. You know, so we're, we're, we're in this phase where like we're talking about such astronomical numbers that we don't really even have an emotional gauge to, to like feel what that feels like, you know. But then in my industry of risk management and insurance, um, not just for health insurance, but like, you know, what are the odds of, you know, the airplane falling out of the sky? What are the odds of climate change? What are the, you know, what are the, odds of these things happening on that roulette wheel? Everything's got a weighted average and, you know, you can yeah. place your bet. But I think, that helps me to keep perspective on life because I'm far more likely to slip in the bathtub 
and die. <laughs> right. Or I'm far more likely to die from a vending machine falling on me than I am a terrorist. Right. Um, and so, you know, there, there's like a whole, like, there's perceived risk versus actual risk, right? And I think that we talk as a society a lot about the perceived risk. Oh, and yeah. And we put a huge focus, a premium on these little things that are actually highly unlikely to happen and we ignore the main causes of what is what we're really in danger for well yeah i mean think about it this way in terms of news gathering to use an old cliche there's not stories about the planes that land Mm -mm. right it's always about the planes that crash man bites dog right? right that's the old news cliche so you hear about that i have read so much coverage of one scooter rider dying in denver you know versus you know how dangerous really are cars compared to scooters a lot more like the the risk is much much higher that you're going to die on the highway than you ever oh, yeah. will riding a scooter you know at 12 miles an hour <laughs> even drunk or high down the street right, right. exactly I mean, add add on top of that you know some some illegal you know but you you're right i mean when you think about it you're focusing on the wrong things and i think that that's that's the big story right now is um i think Right now, people are experiencing a lot of anxiety and fear about a lot of the wrong things. And the, those anxiety and fear triggers are at the base of our brain, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you, human brain, right? At the base, you've got, you know, your, your, your reptilian brain, right? That's keeping, yeah. that's keeping the salinity in your blood in check. It's keeping you breathing without thinking about taking a breath. Yeah, heart's beating. You know, yeah, I mean, a lot of, you know, your liver's filtering and you're not thinking about it consciously, right? That's right. your, that's the base brain in the back. And then you move up. That's your, you know, mammalian brain. And that's like when you look in the eye of a dolphin, you know, you know, there's somebody in there. Mammals look right. at one another and they go, yeah, there's somebody in there. It's yeah. not like it's looking like at a frog. Yeah. You know, you look at a snake and you're like, nothing's happening. Or you, you know, you look at a frog, a reptilian, you know, that's reptilian brain versus mammalian brain. Like we read each other through the eyes, mm -hmm. right? And then, you know, the human brain, the you know, neofrontal cortex up here is, you know, your big database of hard drive storage of just basically just remembering everything that you've experienced. And the problem is, is that in, in the news cycles and the scope of things, people like to talk about fear and the fear cuts off the human, uh, filter. It cuts off the mammalian filter and mm. it's fight or flight. And I think that's a, that's a control mechanism that, that is really effective. And I think politicians use that to their biggest advantage and leverage that as much as possible. And I think that people who are conditioned to be more fearful more often are also more feel for more often surprise. Yeah. So, you know, this, this propaganda conditioning of being afraid, um, and being, uh, afraid of other, um, being afraid of your next door neighbor because they don't look like you or you don't speak the same language. Right. I mean, I speak three languages. I think all Americans should speak at least two. I agree. Um, and, and I say that as someone who doesn't and did at one time. Yeah. And I think, so, you know, tangenting over to the language idea is there's a there's a really strong correlation between uh, the languages you speak and and your level of empathy yeah um and i think um also it's you know not only great for your academics it's great for music it's great for you know um understanding yourself better um you're armed with more uh specific words I like to say that English is the 64 Crayola box of colors because mm -hmm. it's vast, it's specific, and it's pretty useful for pretty much everything, right? Where mm -hmm. English is like the big box. And then, um, and then I would say Spanish is the, is the 32, uh, like supplementary pack of like really vivid, <laughs> like bright colors, you know, the hot yeah. neon pinks and, and whatever. And then, um, and then, uh, those, the people that know me know that uh, my girlfriend Mita is Danish. We've been mm -hmm. together for a long time. And so picking up Danish is like the soft pastels, like ah. the sort of, you know, that the chalk box of, of language. But like when you start to arm your brain with these different ways, these different colors, you start to see the world in high def. Like mm -hmm. you start to color your world with spe specificity that is vivid and vibrant and beautiful and like really enhances your human experience. Um, and, being locked in one language is kind of um, unfair, I think, in a way, because we're so well-rounded as as animals, as human beings, right. that we should be able to express – we should be able to say a word that is well – that resonates well in someone else's head and they know exactly how you feel. Yeah. And that's a beautiful moment because that really is the real connection of like – I have an emotion, but I have to put it into a word, and then it goes through the air, hits your ears, and then you have a word, and then you map it to all the experiences you've ever had with that word, and then you have a, an emotional experience. 
But if I have a word that, that, that strikes at the heart of your word and your experience, that's a really beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, and that lets you, that unlocks doors. It unlocks possible futures. It unlocks an array, a whole different cascade of events that are possible. Um, and I think that that's, that's really what's missing in the, in the public sphere. Um, people just want to talk and say, uh, how they feel, but they're not getting feedback on it, you know, um, unless it's an echo chamber and social media. So mm-hmm. it's tough because, you know, you, you say something and you shout it to the universe and then it bounces back at you and it reinforces, you know, self, self reinforcing cycle about that you're right. But you're not actually hearing anybody else's opinion. You're just hearing your own echo. Yeah. And, and I'm afraid that that's not, it's powerful to you because it's your words. It only resonates with you because you're hearing yourself. And that's not really connecting with anybody else. That's just yelling into an echo chamber that bounces back. And that's scary. I mean, I, I think that we're supposed to be able to communicate clearly and concisely and strike those, those, those uh, notes with somebody, you know, on well, the other side. Well, and here's the thing. We as humans long for connection. We crave it. We desire it. And I feel like a lot of times people have gotten the formula wrong. And what you're describing is if you seek out those with which you already agree, then that connection is going to be facile. It's, it's going to be less meaningful. Whereas, I mean, you hit on a word that is big in the absolute reason for existence of this podcast, and that's empathy. If we can demystify each other and make each other a little bit less scary, then the world brightens and the world opens up. Right. It's one of the reasons I love living in the city. It's because when you don't live in the city and if you live behind a gate, you know, surrounded by people who look like you, anyone who doesn't look like you may as well be an alien, right? They may as well have landed from another planet. Whereas if you live in the city and you're surrounded by lots of different types of people all the time and, you know, rich people, poor people, black people, brown people, white people, all manner of people, crazy people, like being around crazy people in the city is so useful because you go, Absolutely. that guy is nuts, but harmless. Yeah. Right. Yeah, <laughs> like, totally. And so when you see that, and I think about doing this show and going to places that I wouldn't normally go, like when I did my whole faith series, and it sounds like I'm setting up a joke, but I'm not. I interviewed uh, a minister, a rabbi and a Muslim imam, right? Because, and, and I didn't, I, I don't have any connections in the Jewish community. And so I asked the minister, I go, Hey, do you like, are you friends with a rabbi? And he goes, yeah. So I, I met him and I asked him, I'm like, Hey, do you know anyone in, in the Islamic community? And he goes, sure. And he did an in- email intro for me. And I sat down in the mosque. We did the interview in there and it was fantastic. And I, I learned so much about that faith. Whereas if you're in your own echo chamber, hearing about the Islamic faith, mm. it's going to sound frightening. Like, yeah, they, same, same, same with Christianity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, from the outside, Christianity is like, you it's know, the crusades, right? you know, like burning witches and things. I mean, you know, yeah. and, it's uh, all in the name of Jesus. And, and, you know, if if let's say your only exposure to Christianity was the Westboro Baptist Church, mm. right? Which is a weird, twisted thing. Uh, yeah, which is yeah, a, a totally, like, perverted form of Christianity, right? It's the ISIS of Christianity. Exactly. <laughs> right? It, it If that's your only exposure then, you know, you're naturally going to be fearful of them, but you need to seek out other avenues. And that's one thing I was looking through our Facebook Messenger con- uh, conversations, mm-hmm. and you had written a post, and this was years ago now, but it was something about seeking out those with which you disagree mm-hmm. and, and spending time with them. Absolutely. And I love doing that. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, it's frustrating sometimes, but... It's, it's also intensely rewarding because even if you don't change your position, you don't have to, right? And, and yeah. an enlightened mind can, uh, entertain a thought without necessarily needing to adopt it. Yeah, clearly. I totally agree. I think just sparring, you know, with gloves. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's not bare knuckle, right? We're not trying to hurt each other, but we mm-hmm. are trying to box it out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, I think whoever comes more well prepared with endurance and fact, which is something I really want to just say it again. Facts, factual. Oh, dude, facts so, are so tricky right now, so, too. Like, all right, it's so awful. Think, exactly. So think. I think about facts like this, right? Because there's absolute, and again, risk profiles, right? Yeah, there's sure. perceived versus real, right? Real facts are black and white, sure. right? So I mean, you know, the, you know, the sun's going to come up tomorrow. 
yes or no, right? <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, it's that, that's your roulette wheel. You're always going to win, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you think about facts in terms of context, you, you, you can start to contextualize facts and then you start to get, you know, way more than 50 shades of gray in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. The, the world is 50,000 shades of gray. And, um, like, for example, I, and I, this may be controversial, but since, since we're talking about sure. it, you know, Western culture and Western faiths in particular, um, have a way of making heroes out of someone who sacrifices, um, sacrifices themselves for the good of others, right? The firefighter that runs into the burning building to save the people, um, and he dies and the people are saved. So the whole hero uh, arc goes from, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to save you, but I'm going to sacrifice myself. I'm going to die in that situation, right? That's, those are our heroes and legends. I mean, most of our popular culture and, you know, Greek mythology and all of that comes from this Western idea, right? Yeah. All the way up to like Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Myths and, uh, what's it called? Um, myths, uh, uh, what's Joseph Campbell's series? Uh, um, Um, myths. Uh, I can't edit this in it's later. Like myth making. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, heroes and myths or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, he did a whole series on that. But I mean, that's studying Western culture, right? Yeah, of and course. That's, but compare and contrast that with with Eastern culture, right? Um, there are religions and societies that believe um, in martyrdom, and I know that that's a fully like politically charged word. Sure. But um, Jesus Christ was a martyr as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he gave himself up and died being hung on a cross for someone else. He is a he is a martyr, and and during his time, during his period, that was the ultimate sacrifice. But martyrdom today, if you think about it, is um, okay. So there's an external threat on your village, right? And I'm going to go sacrifice my life to save the village but you don't actually kill the person threatening the village right you're 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 in your western culture one you go out and you try and you do save the day but uh the bad guy still went still lives because you haven't murdered right. him and you and you die right that's the biggest sacrifice but the problem is the bad guy comes back tomorrow and threatens the village again and sure. you need a new hero tomorrow right oh, yeah okay you constantly need to re- you know recycle the hero all the time to save the village but in 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 eastern religion you know the martyrdom is i'm going to kill i'm going to sacrifice myself to kill someone to protect the village and that that ends the threat permanently and i i look at that and i think you know not that i'm supporting martyrdom but i'm saying that that seems like uh, an end game um, move, right? right? To to I died, but I also took them out with me, and therefore those people will never again threaten my village. And I've ended the continual conflict of needing to raise heroes. And so, if, I mean, philosophically, I, of course, I don't believe in ending anybody's life or having to need, yeah. you know to get up to that point, but. I also think it, it is interesting how Western cultures go, yeah, we sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice, but we're not actually removing the threat in a permanent way in a lot of, in a lot of circumstances. So, you know, we make the sacrifice, but then we're constantly having to make the sacrifice. Whereas Eastern, Eastern religions, Eastern cultures, you know, just cut off the head and then call it done. And they maybe die in the process, but that's what martyrdom is. And that's what Christ did on the cross. And, mm. you know, that's, that's where the divergence of Christianity and Judaism, you know, branch, oh, sure, um, yeah. you know, Christ wasn't a Christian. He was a Jew. Right. Well, and, I mean, you know, <laughs> to, to all your, of that, you know, to your point, I mean, Lewis Black did a whole bit one time about he was tired of Christians quoting the Old Testament. He goes, as a Jew, that's my book. Right. He's like, but you all had to introduce this brand new great character. Right. His loving God. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, it went from drunken, abusive father in the Old Testament, right. the one that smites people and had place favorites, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, this is my army, not your army and all that. And I, I've, yeah, you, you know, need my need to kill your only son. Like, yeah, here's a test for you, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Murder your child. Um, yeah, it, it, that's the, that's the, dr- you know, drunken father, you know, I'm going to beat you, uh, but it's going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And it's, uh, yeah, I've read the old Testament and studied the Bible and studied Christianity quite profoundly, actually. My, my father was a born again Christian mm. and that was a big rift between us. And so in my teen years, um, when he dropped off and essentially joined a cult, I just would call it that. I Fair mean, enough. he became, he became washed over in, in this new born again religion and being born again essentially means that you know you're 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 shedding your skin of your old life you're letting your old people go including sometimes your family and my dad dropped off wow and uh and i was 12 i was 10 when he started 12 when he fell off 
And Jeez. so, you know, at 12 years old, you know, you're trying to reestablish a relationship to know your dad. You know, you're a young boy, you're prepubescent, you're trying to figure out what it's like to be a man. And then all of a sudden he's just gone, you know, gone and he's adopted a whole new family oh, you know, geez, in, really? within the church, you know, like, oh, right. Okay. Church kids are his now nephews and nieces and stuff, you know, like, and he's attending their birthday parties and their things and being a part of their lives. And all of a sudden there's a space. And so I, I really dove into Christianity and, and tried to find where, where my dad went in the scripture, you know, were you resentful of that? Probably. I mean, yes, uh, as a child, not, yeah. not so much as an adult. Okay. You know, I, I forgave him a long time ago and, and that's water under the bridge. But that, that was kind of a watershed moment for me too, is to let that go. You know, a big, um, a big reason why I accelerated through high school and university and just got out again was to prove to him that I could do it without him. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's, yeah. but it's that religion that took him away from me. And I do feel a bit of resentment for the religion from, from my childhood perspective. But as an adult, you know, looking back on it, I think, you know, if he's happy, then, um, then it was totally worth it. You know, like if he's found his place in the world and if he's found his, his tribe, um, then, then that, that's a beautiful thing. And I, I would never, I would never resent him for that. Well, that, I mean, that's not nothing. I will give you that. And as humans, uh, I grant you anytime anyone finds where they ideally belong, right? That's a victory. Yeah. But that's not to say there's, n- there's not going to be collateral damage. Yeah. And that's you and your Absolutely. brother. Yeah. And yeah, and, I mean, I, I, and probably others along the way. I have like little, you know, a little trophy because, you know, I can name all the books of the Bible. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Letters, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Titus, Philemon, Hebrew, James. It's a, it's a bar trick, but really it's a song <laughs> that you sing in your head that, you know, you can name sure. back all the, you know, those types of things. You, you're going through this process of assimilation into a culture that you're unfamiliar with. And, um, and I've just had a lot of that in my life, you know, from a religious aspect to a cultural aspect to a language aspect to just even a geographic graphical aspect. And I think probably one of the things that I post most about on the internet or whatever, maybe my voice is probably most strong is I'm, I'm a white American man. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know, um, and I realized that when I was 20 years old and I went to Guatemala and I lived with, uh, the, the, the Mayans, the local indigenous people in Lago Atitlan, west of the, the capital in the mountains, the Sutu Hill, um, they taught me a lot about what it means to be happy with nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew up pretty, you know, not very privileged, but, um, I thought that I was poor and we did grow up pretty tight and uh, a single mom raising two boys. And then I realized at 20 that like, you know, even though there was a point back in the day when we were struggling really hard and I thought this is, this couldn't get any worse, getting evicted from your apartment, having your car repoed, uh, showing up to school in a police car. Cause oh my, you yeah. know, that, that, that. That was third grade for me. <laughs> Jesus. You know, like that's, that's rock bottom at eight. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and, um, but that, th- those memories, you know, stay with you and they form part of who you are. And then like, you know, the, all the reason with my dad and all that stuff and then getting, getting to the point to where I could just let it all go and let it all burn, uh, was a freeing moment for me. And, uh, that happened in Guatemala. Mm-hmm. And, um, so yeah, I owe, I owe the people there a lot. Well, one thing I got to ask yeah. that I'm struck by listening to this is given the story, you know, you move out of Florida at eight years old and, you know, you're, you're in five points here in Denver and especially back, back in the, back in 1990. Yeah. Which five, 1989, 1990, that was a sketchy, sketchy situation. Well, and five points is getting gentrified rapidly right now. Sure. So what's, what's interesting to me is. You know, you've lived all over the world now and you find yourself as almost, you know, stranger in a strange land where, where you are the visible minority. That template seems to be set for you. Is that something that you choose intentionally or not? Like, do you, do you enjoy that aspect of, you know, moving away from what's familiar and what, you know, people who look like you? And, and maybe even people who think like you. Is that something you choose intentionally or is that just sort of a byproduct of where the wind takes you? Uh, it's a combination of both. You know, I, I, um, because I can see where that would be addictive too, because I'm, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I mean, but it's not just about, you know, me and the people who look like me. Like I know that for some random lucky thing that my soul, and if you want to call it that, landed in this body. 
Um, I, I, I know that like if I close my eyes and I throw a dart at the planet and I'm born, I like hit the lotto ticket with my dart. Yeah. Like I landed in this body in this decade in this country with no birth defects capable to, you know, no, you know, capable to stand and walk and run and, and shit. And I, right. Yeah. You check all the boxes like, like white, straight, white, cisgendered, yeah, able-bodied, absolutely. American, American and masculine and man. man yes. Right. So, I mean, this, this is it's who speaks English. Right. I mean, what I'm saying is like, there, there is no better lottery ticket. It's the golden ticket. Mm-hmm. Right. And I didn't do anything to, to deserve that. I didn't do anything like, you know, it was just dumb luck. That's happenstance. Right. Absolutely. And and so I recognize that. And I think there are people smarter and more talented than me in places that they never got the opportunity. And so, you know, I think my success has been a product of, of course, my hard work, but also dumb luck. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, I am the one who will give... Thanks to chance even. And, and I think a lot of white guys probably, you know, and especially I, I've got a reason to complain. I grew up poor. I mean, I grew up in tough situations. I fought my way out and it, there's a, there's a saying that says, you know, a pot full of crabs needs no lid. And mm-hmm. what that means is, is as soon as this pot starts to boil and one crab gets his little claw over the edge, the rest of the claw crabs grab a hold of him and try and climb out on top of him right, yeah. and they end up pulling him back down and everyone dies in the bottom of the pot. And that is poverty. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy of oppression that poverty traps you back down in the pot. And it, you know, you, you, that's, that's a pot full of crabs. You don't need to put a lid on it. You don't, in a poverty situation, you don't need, you don't need a villain to oppress the poor people. You don't need somebody to really hold them down under their thumb hmm. and keep them in poverty because poverty is self-fulfilling. And so th- these situations that I find myself in is that I've been able to sort of escape the pot. Mm-hmm. And realizing how lucky I am, but uh, to do that, but now I got it's my obligation to turn around and try and reach my little claw back in and try and save some of those other people that are in there. And maybe those people don't look like me. I think probably the people that look like me and are in poverty situations are generally a product of their own of their own creation. And and I have right. to hold the and they hate to hear that. You well, know? and not to blame the victim here necessarily. Absolutely no. And I'm not trying to point fingers at the people who have right. had bad luck or bad circumstance. What I'm saying is though, man, you had the lottery ticket in your hand. You know what I mean? And if you didn't cash it in, it's not my problem. And I have to, and I've come up to that level at mm. 37 now mm. where like I used to be like, yeah, everybody, you know, try. Uh, and, and that's where, you know, that's probably where my political point of view comes from too is, I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm not for equality. I'm for equity. Okay. Equitable share. And what I mean by that is I'm not, I'm not trying to be, I'm not for communism. I'm not for, you know, everyone being equal because I just don't think that's a system that works. And at the same time, I don't think, I think capitalism has its limits. And so, um, and, and you, you know, you start to sacrifice things like, you know, quality of life and environment and, you know, sustainability of life for capitalistic pursuits. And I think that when you start to find the middle ground between those two extremes on the pendulum, you know, that's probably why I, I mostly assign myself as, you know, a social Democrat, um, even before it was popularized by Bernie Sanders. Right. But I think, you know, the best example of that is in America, the American dream is everyone has the same opportunity. And if you work hard, you get ahead. And that's, that's oftentimes associated with capitalism, but it's not. Capitalism doesn't function like that. Capitalism works on, you know, um, uh, aggregating capital into the hands of a few to achieve things that one person couldn't do on their own. Um, the form of capitalism is to consolidate power in the hands of a group of people who can do something with it so that we, I don't have to build a rocket ship and you don't have to build a rocket ship. We can work together and build a rocket ship, right? Okay. Um, same with roads. Teachers, military, all that. But those functions are actually also socialist functions as well. Sure. Um, so, you know, when we talk about what is a social democratic society that's equitable, um, the best example, and I know this is probably going over on time. I'm not sure how much time no, we have. No, you're doing left. good. All right. When I mean, we, yeah, we don't have a ton of time, but you're good. Okay. When we, um, the best example that I can give about what it means to, to, realize the American dream in an equitable sense is, you know, the, the, 
the, the little anecdotal story of the, the teacher giving all the students in the class a piece of paper, right? Just imagine the 30-person classroom, rows of desks facing the chalkboard. The teacher gives everyone a piece of blank paper and says, okay, you've all been given a piece of blank paper. We're all equal, yeah? Okay, everybody's been given the same shot. You've been all armed with the same tools. And that's a you know metaphor for good education, clean right. water, you know, public services, all that. Everybody's equal. Now, who can uh, make a basket into this trash can up here in the front? Now, crumple up your paper. Ah, uh, interesting. And everybody gets one shot, right? This is your future. This is everything. Everything's riding on this shot. Now, crumple up your piece of paper. Everyone's equal, right? Right. We all got a piece of paper, right? Okay. We all agree. Throw it into this trash can up here. Now, the kids in the front can just reach out and drop it in. Mm -hmm. Those are the kids that are born with a silver spoon in their mouths. Those are the kids that have social class, social advantage, social. And they generally tend to be people who look like me. Right, sure. White men, blonde, blue-eyed, English-speaking Americans in, that was born in the 80s sometime, you know, in this, in, right. in this, in this, gen, in this general decades of prosperity, right? Sure. I mean, that's, that's, that's the profile that you would think of. But then, you know, the kids in the back, they got a big shot to hit and uh, some of them will make it. I mean, some sure. of them will hit it, but I would say most of them will miss. And that's sort of the myth of the American dream is that just because everyone has a piece of paper doesn't mean that if we try harder, we'll hit it. Right. Um, yeah, the, that's true. You know, like we're, we're not, we're not positioned to, in the same position. So the, the real, the real equitable solution to that is to circle up the desks and put the trash can in the middle of the circle. And make sure that everyone's equally the same distance and equally has a shot at it. And now what that means is that if you try harder, you'll hit it. And some kids won't just trip over the bar because it's set so low. Oh, and some right, kids, right. you know what I mean? Everyone will get an equitable shot at their future. And that, that's democratic socialism is essentially arming everyone and making sure that there's a strong middle class and that there's nobody that's too rich and nobody that's too poor. And just to make sure that everyone is kind of in that nice middle ground around the trash can instead of classifying from the top to the bottom all the way to the kids in the back. And I think that that's really where my political point of view comes through is, you know, the social democrats in Denmark are a hell of a lot more playing the American dream a hell of a lot better than we are. Right. You know, where they're, they're actually actuating the American dream through their social democratic policies. And, and there's a lot more social mobility in Denmark. There's a, there's a statistic called the Gini index, G-I-N-I. And it's, um, the distribution of wealth across a nation, you know, and some are more and some are less. And zero is, or one is a perfect score being, that's communist, everyone being equal, right? <laughs> right. And, um, it's a complicated math formula, but you can look it up on Wikipedia. It's G-I-N-I. But that, you know, that's your ranking, right? How well is the distribution of wealth? And then there's also another, another statistic called generational elasticity. Are you better or worse off than your parents and by how much? Like strap a, a rubber band to your parents' success or failure and see how far you pull right. up or down. And the gap that's created is your, gen, is your generational elasticity. And that, that for me is a great measurement of how are we doing with the American dream? And I think, this generation, you know, is actually worse off than uh, their parents' generation for the first time in American history. Right. You know, the, the elasticity is, is negative. We're red right now uh, because of the accumulation of wealth by the very few people at the very, very top because the pendulum has swung so far capitalist that it's starting to hurt the general welfare of the population of the country. And that actually... You you can measure it, you can see it, and there's actual steps you can take to to move that pendulum back. And so that's why I generally have that um, leftist streak in me. But it's actually just out of a sense of justice. If we really want to validate the American dream, then we have to circle the desks mm -hmm. and actually say, you know, hey, everybody gets the same shot. Um, and that just requires a bit of reworking on, on a lot of different levels and how we prioritize spending. And, you know, I think we can cut taxes and also give better services all at the same time if we just focus on the things that really matter. Right. No, I mean, I agree with you. And I think about what you were describing as capitalism going too far. And I think about what Alden Capital is doing to the Denver Post right now. Um, taking something that is of a public use, mm. you know, a public good, Journalism matters, and journalism is something that's very, very important to me. And they are gutting it and hollowing it out for the enrichment of a very few. Absolutely. And, and I mean, that in some ways is happening writ large. And so that's where I absolutely agree with you. The one thing I will say that capitalism does where it has its benefits is 
when you do sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, capitalism allows people to take care of many of those smaller needs so that you find in more industrialized countries, that's when they start giving a shit about the environment, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> Whereas if, if you are, you know, if, if you're in a system that doesn't reward, doesn't have any financial incentive to move up, then the environment ends up just taking an entire backseat. Yes. Um, and so, I mean, that's, you know, if you care about the environment, you should be pro capitalist. That's the message. Well, yes. Capitalism enables environmental stewardship. Right. In a lot of ways it does. Sure. I would say that the, I agree, but I think also it's not necessarily in terms of capitalistic terms. You said industrialized and industry, industry is not capitalist. And I think we have to separate the oh, two because okay, you, yeah. you can't marry those two ideas. You can be industrial and socialist or whatever. The, no, that's fair. That's and, a good point. And I would think about it in terms – not in terms of, uh, of, of capital but in terms of time, mm-hmm. right? So like if tomorrow – if you're hungry and you got no plans for – if you got no food for tomorrow, your focus is right in front of your nose. You can't right, see beyond yeah. the, fro- the tip of your nose. You gotta, you're in survival mode. Those are most non-industrial countries. Those are third world countries, right? Right, right? They have short-term planning. They have short-term needs. They have, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs stops at food tomorrow, right? Yeah, food, it's, yeah, food and then followed by what? Shelter. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, but I mean, th- you're barely covering the bottom tier. Yeah, right, right, right. And, and that doesn't allow you to think forward, not necessarily about other more important larger ideas. But uh, that that traps you into that lower layer, and if you don't have savings for next month's rent, then you're worried about this month's rent. You're right. going to do any. You're so focused on this month's rent, and and so so on and so on and so on going forward. Extrapolate that out to next year and ten year planning. We're not going to build a bridge because we can't do it in a week. Well, so we're just not going to do it. I mean right. that that those types of infrastructure projects, and what makes a first world country is. Long-term planning and investment in public infrastructure. Um, you know, pass. Uh, what's that? Uh, it's a great uh, Greek saying that uh, a society grows great when old men plant trees that they know they'll never sit in the shade. <laughs> right. I mean, we, the, that kind of investment. I mean, that that's a real generational upon generational investment, and that that's how capitalism supports that type of infrastructure. You know, that type of long-term planning. Um, you know, c- group planning. But I think in a third-world sense. They don't have the luxury of thinking about tomorrow. They don't right. have the luxury of thinking about till next week. It's not that they don't care or that they're not aware or no, that they're not educated. Not. It's just they have more principal needs, you know, right away. And I think it's our obligation to work on those types of things as a first world nation to look at the third world nations and not to criticize them for being so short sighted or not giving a crap about the environment. It's just we have to recognize that clean water and sanitation is more important to them. And if we care about the environment, we, it's our job to support them to try and and, arm them with the right technology right. and, and, and tools. If, if we can help them solve those problems, then they move on to different problems, right? And yeah. you, you move, you move you, up. Yeah, you move up the hierarchy. Absolutely. So I hate to cut this short, yeah, but yeah, we no do problem. we do need to wrap up. You and I, I think, could do this for a month or something. Sure, sure, sure. Which I can call in. <laughs> which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show. I didn't know exactly what we were going to talk I about. I didn't either, yeah. But I didn't particularly care. Because I was like zen about it. I I thought, you know, given the exchanges that we've had, just in the digital space, I go, whatever this is, whatever comes out here is going to be good. Cool. So I'm uh, happy to help. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate your service. (laughs) Uh, Hashtag uh, Denver Post, don't die. Uh, yeah, <laughs> there's like there's like 25 of the hashtags I want to put on this, but even though I'm not on Twitter, maybe that'll drive some. Yeah, hashtag sell podcast. the Denver Post, all in capital. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, now's the time on the show when we do plugs. Is there anything you want to plug? Empathy. Okay. Here's my plug for empathy. Right. That's uh, that's the first time anyone's plugged a concept. <laughs> uh, think and, about it though. I mean, think about it. Look, if you and I'm a businessman, I I have you know over 100 employees, and I I, I gotta say, lead with empathy. Just try that. Try that as your business strategy. Fucking lead first step with empathy. Shake the person's hand, look them in the eye, be empathetic, and see what resonates with that. And that leads yeah. to great business relationships. It leads to prosperity for a lot of people. Um, and also, you know, when you, ha- when you make it to the top of the pyramid, you know, when you're looking out and you're thinking one, two, three years down the road, if you got a five year plan, you're way ahead of the curve and start to think about the people that have a five day plan and make your five year plan part of their five day plan. Like try to empathize with the people that weren't born and didn't win the lottery ticket and, you know, 
Just recognize maybe you're not the most clever, smartest, hardworking person that's ever existed. Maybe a big part of that could be luck. And that's a hard thing to swallow for a lot of people. But empathy and the ability to empathize with other people and um and and it's okay to be lucky like it's absolutely it's not don't feel guilty yeah, no, you no, don't it's, need, good. it's not something you need to apologize for. no but, but you have to recognize rec- yeah you gotta like own that you look it in the eye and be like for better or worse i won the lotto and also you know a lot of shit comes with that too you know there's you know a lot of history of setting you up like that that you have to own yeah not all of it's pretty uh but then uh i think final word is uh gratitude hell yeah you know being grateful grateful uh waking up grateful for the things that you have the kind of person that you are your health your relationships your your business your philosophy the kind of person that you are the kind of person that you wake up next to i think gratitude is everything and if you can live inside your world with gratitude if you can wake up every day with gratitude um i think empathy is the next natural ex- external step um and sharing that so yeah I think that's the best philosophy I can I can throw on the table. Well, I'm grateful that you came from a country away <laughs> and carved out an hour for me. Yeah. And sat down and did this. So um, likewise. Dustin, real pleasure. Continued success to you, my man. Likewise. And that wraps up episode 224 of the John of All Trades podcast. Big thanks to Dustin Wendling for carving out an hour when you are here in Colorado for probably the only time this year. Thank you for sitting down with me. I adored this chat. The plugs, empathy, and gratitude. Express them both, experience them both, and we'll all be better for it. John of All Trades Podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. Training, content, engagement, podcasting. Those are the four pillars where I can help your organization tell its story to people who need to hear it and do it in a new and robust way. Our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Anything you're doing online, building a website, social media marketing, online advertising, 4Degrees can get your message in front of the people who need to see it most and at a cost that's very attractive. Whether it's a product, service, campaign, or candidate, 4Degrees has got you covered. The number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. John of All Trades is on social media. That's J-O-A-T pod across platforms. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Facebook is the only place to find out about the first job series. Dustin's was amazing. Fishing golf balls out of alligator-infested waters. New episodes drop on Wednesday. Those are available on iTunes, Stitcher, a billion other podcatchers, and the John of All Trades homepage. That's J-O-N-of-all-trades.us. I'm out of here this week. Thank you for listening. Happy birthday to me. I'm going to go celebrate, have some fun. No episode next week, but a brand new essay. I think you'll enjoy it very much. So until I hear you again, say goodnight, Tracy. That's good, Johnny.